0: On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about what's happening in Caledonia. It is again troubling and intensely frustrating for the people who live in Caledonia because this fight between the Indigenous protesters and the federal government has put the locals in the middle with no power to do anything. We'll talk about that one. We're also going to talk about judicial appointments in this country and whether or not politics, like in the U.S., whether or not politics are beginning to impose themselves on choosing who the judges are. That's troubling if it's happening. And Don Robertson joins me. We'll talk boxing. We'll talk hockey. We'll talk NBA. Who knows what else we'll talk about? Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I'm, I'm assuming, I'm hoping that everybody listening is aware of what's happening in Caledonia right now. It's not the first time that there has been a blockade, a standoff, whatever words you want to use for it. And many people listening are going to have different points of view on what's happening. Many people are going to be very, very sympathetic to the indigenous protesters. Many people are going to disagree with the indigenous protesters. Many people are going to be angry with the federal government for not being active enough in all this kind of stuff. But stuck in the middle of all of this are the people of Caledonia. They are not the federal government. They are not the protesters who say the federal government has done them wrong. They are merely people who are living there who time after time after time seem to be caught in the midst of all this. They are not the ones who have the power to do anything. On the weekend a protest, not a protest, pardon me, a gathering, I guess, more than a protest, but a gathering was arranged to try to bring some of the protesters, the indigenous protesters, and some of the people from Caledonia together with a bigger plan in the midst of this. Kim Smiley Wiley is a real estate agent. She was one of the organizers of that rally. She joins us now. Kim, thanks for doing this today. I really appreciate it.
1: I really appreciate you having me on, Scott.
0: Well, here's the thing. This is not, as everyone knows, anyone who's followed or been around here or knows what's gone on in Caledonia since really the turn of the millennium knows, uh, this is not the first time that there has been a blockade. This has happened a number of times. And I may though, Kim, have just missed it because a lot of stuff has happened and other things creep up and we don't notice them. But I don't remember before uh, an example where an attempt was made to bring both the sides on the ground together at the same time. Am I wrong? Or is this a first?
1: Yeah, this is the first.
0: Well, how can that be? I mean, this has happened so many times. How could this possibly be the first time?
1: Well, I think, I think it's because, well, we've come to a thought process that's very simple. You know, we're not against one another here. It's not about who's right and who's wrong. There's nothing that those of us that live in Caledonia, and not just Caledonia, all of the neighboring communities that are being affected by it, there's nothing that we can do personally. So the thought process was, well, what can we do to help? How can we, you know, get this going? And, you know, it just comes across our, our radar, and it's like, everything is so radio silent here. We haven't heard anything in weeks and weeks and weeks from the government whatsoever. So what's going on? So that's when we thought, you know what? If we join together, and we, like, you know, we talked to the, the people in charge at Six Nations, and we talked to the federal government, and we called them all out, and we say, what are you guys doing? Like, what did you do yesterday to get this situation better? Nothing. Why not? So we decided, let's all get together. And so Mike Henderson and myself reached out to people from Six Nations to talk to them and to see if they would be interested in this. And to say they were hesitant at the beginning would be very, very true. They were very cautious with us. Couldn't believe that this was happening.
0: Before we get into what the government did or didn't do, um, just on that hesitancy, I I would expect that that was probably on both sides for a lot of this, because the reality is, I would assume, I don't live there, you do. I have to believe that, again, not just because of this time, because of the repeated times this this has happened, I'm guessing there are probably some very raw feelings on both sides of this.
1: Oh, absolutely. In 2006. Now, I wasn't a resident in 2006. And I can only go by what I've read, and what I've seen, and the, the documentaries and, and everything, and uh, just the way that I've educated myself on it. Um, but the amount of pain that has happened to, to both sides of the people here since then, and then to have nothing resolved. Since then, and to have six or seven blockades go back up again since 2006 to now t- to 2020, and to be living with more blockades all-, all the time. It doesn't end here. When it comes up, it's oh, there we go again. And that's not what anybody wants. You know, people from Six Nations, they don't want it. And Caledonians don't want it. But there's obviously some sort of injustice here. Because if there wasn't an injustice, we we wouldn't be experiencing any of this whatsoever.
0: But so the challenge really are... is, Kim, I would think the challenge really is for the people of Caledonia, I'm not referring to the indigenous people of Caledonia, uh, mm-hmm. but um, there is one side to the fight and there is the federal government side of the fight. And for the other people who are just in Caledonia, uh, you know, my interpretation, you're sort of just stuck in the middle of this with no, you know, you're just stuck in the middle.
1: Yeah, we are totally stuck in the middle. It just feels like we're the forgotten people, we're collateral damage, it doesn't matter. But I'm sure that the people from Six Nations also feel that way. They feel the exact same way too, right? Because they're sitting, a lot of them are sitting there going, well, what are we going to do? They're feeling the exact same way. It's like, what Mm -hmm. are we going to do? We're all feeling the same way. And we're both waiting for both sides to get to the table to figure this out once and for all. And don't let this go on anymore. We don't want, well, I won't say we, but I'll say I, I don't want those blockades to come down until they have a decision that says, yes, this is going to happen and everybody is good with this decision and then the blockades will never, ever come back up again.
0: I left out the third side to this triangle, which is the federal government, who is really what you're trying, the group you're trying to get active here. Did anybody from the federal government show up for this?
1: no we uh, contacted carolyn bennett's office mark miller's office justice trudeau um, everyone we could that we thought would be interested in it and unfortunately no one came
0: were you surprised
1: (sighs) well not really because through all of our communications and efforts we never got a response ever through every single email that we sent out, um, everybody received the same cut-and-copy response from the federal government, and even after um, our event on Saturday was aired, there was a response from the Office of the Minister of Crown-Indigenous Relations, and it said that we look forward to meeting with the community at the earliest opportunity. And That would have been about that,
0: 2002.
1: <clears throat> yeah.
0: I mean, that's the earliest opportunity it was 18 <laughs> right? years ago. Yeah. Um, this is not new.
1: Mm-hmm. And they didn't show up, but the chief from six nations came.
0: Well, I, look, I, I, I'm not surprised entirely by that because I do get the sense that the indigenous protesters are very motivated to have this thing they are. resolved. I don't. Well, I I don't know if I can say the government is or isn't motivated, but there's not much evidence to show that they are motivated to do something with this.
1: And that's why we did Saturday, Scott, because we haven't heard a word. We haven't been hearing anything. It's gone silent in the news from them. It's gone silent to us from any type of, of communication at all. And we need to hear that somebody can make all of us Caledonia people and all of Haldeman feel like we matter. Because we do, and we're sitting here, and it's like, it doesn't matter. They don't matter at all. It's a terrible feeling for us to be living like this.
0: The, the, the funny part, and when I say funny, I don't mean ha-ha funny. I mean the ironic part funny about hmm. this, is that if this had never happened before, you might be able to say, well, the government is just waiting for this thing to blow over and everyone to go back to their corners and it'll just sort of go away and, you know, they can have a resolution without really having to do much. But we know now that's not going to be the case. Even if this does end now, in a year or two or three, we're going to be right back here again.
1: Absolutely. Just like 2006, it was an awful ordeal what happened then. People were hurt severely. Things happened that never should have happened. And it's like it's like it never happened. It's, it's never dealt with. And now here we are again doing this. And now we have lots of blockades up, not just one, lots of them. There's approximately 40 to 50 police officers on every single shift right now. It is incredible. What, what's happening, all of the amount of money that is just going out the door to try to fund this, and if you think that the people that are at Land Back Lane are going to be leaving soon, you're mistaken for sure. They're hunkering down. They're not going anywhere.
0: So for you and for the other people from Caledonia, who again, I, I describe as being stuck in the middle because you can't you can't resolve this, but you are unable to get away from this because you have homes there. What is your interpretation of what your role is in this then or, or what you're supposed to do with this?
1: Well, we need to keep on making noise. We need to keep on contacting the government constantly. We need to be sending emails, making phone calls, Um, are we going to Ottawa? That's the next talk right now. And that's definitely in the books. We've been talking with people from Six Nations and with a lot of the people who are at the event. But why are
0: you, why are you going to Ottawa? And I look, I I understand (laughs) what you're trying to do, but it Mm -hmm. doesn't seem like that's your role to have to go to Ottawa. Of of all the people, you would be the last group that should be going to Ottawa.
1: You're right. But I think we need to stand in solidarity together. And we need to have to show them that we're 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 here to su- support the support the government's getting together and finding a resolution to this, so that everybody can have peace and live together. We have two communities here, Scott, that are ripped apart. Mm-hmm. We have friends. We have our kids go to school together. You know, McKinnon Park is the only high school in this area, and you know they got to be together and see each other and here they all are ripped apart. Like it's just awful what happens from, from grade nine and up. And then it's just terrible. And we rely on each other's resources. Like they have businesses that, that need to be, that need to be open. And we have businesses that need to be open. And with COVID, the double impact affecting both of them. Oh my goodness. It's so worrisome.
0: We, uh, we got to run, unfortunately. But uh, look, when I say that you're the last people that should be going to Ottawa, the indigenous protesters to me should be taking their fight up with Ottawa and be mm-hmm. taking it to Ottawa and the people in Ottawa, the politicians and the government should be down here dealing with the stuff that they have to deal with. You guys should not, in my mind, you guys shouldn't be the ones who have to take this to Ottawa. You're the, as I say, the last group, you're the middleman here, not the ones who should be having to make this fight, but I I understand why it is. Kim Smiley-Wiley, really appreciate the time t- t- today. Thanks for doing this.
1: Thanks for
0: having me, Scott. I really appreciate it. We so have listening to, to the Scott Bradley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Distinguished ourselves judicially in our legal system from the system that is south of the border by one very specific, one very different way we do things. And that is in the states, by and large, many judges, most judges, are elected. And that means that they are largely riding on the back or on the coattails of a political party. You have judges who are Republican, judges who are Democrat, by and large, not all, but many. And the ones who are appointed are appointed by governments in power. And so we have situations like what we have seen in the last number of months where people claim that, the new judges in the Supreme Court are not going to be fair or are Republican hacks or whatever else. Of course, it's worth pointing out, and this seems to get lost a lot of the time, that, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was there before, well, she was appointed by a Democrat and was seen as a ardent liberal nobody seemed to have a problem with that but anyway it's another point but we 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 in this country have managed to avoid the politicization of judges seems to be but there is a lawsuit a fascinating lawsuit that has been launched in this country and it's challenging the federal government's system for appointing judges here the issue the growing belief that we're starting to do what they're doing in the states that the federal government is identifying supporters of them in this case, the Liberals, when choosing judges, which is kind of antithetical to what we've done here. This lawsuit is being brought by Democracy Watch. The co-founder of Democracy Watch is Duff Conacher, who joins us now. Duff, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, In this country, and we were just talking beforehand about how we do it different from the states, but even in this country, our judges, by definition, because you have governments in power, the judges have been appointed by governments, that you would think automatically injects politics into the process. How has it not, or what has changed that this is now different and concerning?
2: Well, um, probably nothing has changed, but for the first time we have um, evidence that um, the, the whole system is really politicized quite a bit. Um, based essentially on uh, a whistleblower um, disclosing emails that are internal to the government. And likely what we now have evidence of has always happened. Um, but because we have that evidence, it provides the grounds for a lawsuit.
0: And what is it? What? What? Explain, if you can, what is, we believe, happening now?
2: Well, uh, first of all, something that has continued for a while, is that uh, unlike in a couple of provinces at least, like Manitoba and, and British Columbia, the uh, Minister of Justice chooses a majority of the members of the advisory committees that, that are set up in every province to review candidates and, and recommend nominees for positions on the provincial superior courts and the uh, courts of appeal and also the federal courts. Um, so that's one thing that hasn't changed that was already verified. And you know in Manitoba and British Columbia the Attorney General the Minister of Justice does not choose a majority of the members of those committees. So that's one thing that we think should change is that the the government really shouldn't be choosing any of these people it should be fully independent committees that come up with the short list of candidates for positions on uh in on uh, the the bench on the as judges uh and appeal court judges. But uh, what's come out through these internal emails is that when the the Minister of Justice receives long lists of candidates from these committees in the provinces, that the Minister of Justice then shares that long list, not just with cabinet ministers, uh, but also with MPs in the ruling party and the Liberals, and then also with party officials who are not even part of the government. They're just Liberal Party officials in various provinces. And so these emails have revealed that they're asking all these liberals who should be appointed to, uh, as a judge, and only the liberals. They're not circulating it to opposition party MPs or opposition party officials or the opposition leaders. They're just circulating, the, the Minister of Justice is just circling the long list to liberals and asking them, you know, who from this list should we uh, appoint? that's a very politicized end part of the process and adding that, uh, adding a lot of politics to the fact that the minister of justice also, uh, chooses a majority of the members of the advisory committees.
0: So you don't even necessarily have to be hands on directly with the selection of the judges, but if you've appointed all the people or most of the people on the advisory committee, you can still control the things.
2: Yes. And just to clarify, um, what happens is the attorney, the minister of justice appoints 3 people directly to the 7-member committees in each province and territory and then the chief justice chooses one. The other 3 come from lists of nominees submitted by the Canadian Bar Association chapter in the province, the law society, the lawyers association in the province and the attorney general in the province. But they su- they submit lists of nominees. So again, the minister of justice gets to make the final choice. Of uh, four of the seven members, sorry, six of the seven members of the uh, of the committees, and as I say, in Manitoba and, and British Columbia, the minister chooses three of the seven members. I, I don't think the minister sh- there should be any politician choosing any of the members, uh, or if there are going to be politicians involved, it should be a committee made up of all the parties in the the legislature, and they should choose members to the committee. So then, you know, the Liberals wouldn't allow the NDP to appoint someone who's explicitly NDP and vice versa, and and it would end up with a very much more non-partisan committee. But, you know, then the minister goes on and circulates this long list that the, the committee recommends of candidates and uh, then gets to make the final choice as well.
0: Duff, just listening to that explanation of what you said a moment ago, I think a lot of Canadians who like to believe that we don't do the American thing by politicizing our justices, um, this runs the risk of really, I think, um, knocking down the belief, the faith that people have in our system, does it not?
2: I think it does. And um, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled uh, long ago, now about 35 years ago, that the public's confidence in the impartiality and independence of judges is essential for judges to have that independence if the public views the system as being biased and partisan then what what's what does it matter if judges are independent if the public doesn't have that confidence that they are because then that trust is lost mm. in the impartiality and the and the perception is uh, from the public that the judges are biased and that's the danger that, as you mentioned, the Canadian Bar Association has uh, raised, and that this lawsuit raises, and that many others are raising as well. And uh, it's not that, again, things were done better in the past. They likely weren't. It's that we now have the clear evidence of just how political the system is. And that's why we're challenging it in court, and uh, why uh, House of Commons Committee is going to be uh, holding hearings uh, likely in no December may not make it to start before the break um, uh before the parliament breaks uh December eleventh through till the end of january and if it if they don 't make it before that then uh we 'll end up having those uh hearings in in uh starting in february uh but the opposition parties control that house committee, the House Justice Committee and uh, they're planning to hold hearings to explore this further and will likely make recommendations to match some of the better practices that we see in other jurisdictions, such as in in Manitoba and B.C., in terms of having more independent advisory committees. And then in in Ontario and Quebec and also the United Kingdom, the committees only send a very short list to the minister of one to three members. In In the United Kingdom, the committee sends one candidate to the minister, and if the minister says no, the minister has to provide written reasons as to why they're rejecting that candidate. So that that makes the minister it makes it really difficult for the minister to make a political decision because their their discretion, their choice, is very much constrained by a more much more independent process and and merit based process as a result.
0: Duff, I I I, like, I don't want to muddy the waters here, but it seems ultimately everything in our world has become so politicized these days. Everything has become politicized. And how how far back do you have to go to remove that? Because you you talk about these advisory boards that it's pretty easy by the sounds of it to politicize, but who who ultimately should choose the advisory boards and how do we remove the politics even from them or from the people before them? Like, is it possible to remove politics from this process?
2: It is entirely possible to remove it a lot. And that is... um, by uh, essentially starting with how um, the advisory committees are chosen. Uh back in 2006 during the uh election, uh the Harper uh, uh Harper uh, Conservatives promised that if they won, they would set up a public appointments commission that would make all of these kind of appointments and ensure, as a result, that cabinet ap- appointments were merit-based. So this public appointments commission that would be independent from cabinet, they didn't say exactly how it would be selected, but in order to be independent, it would either have to be chosen by all the parties, the members of it, or be representatives from the courts and other places that uh, are, by definition, nonpartisan already, and have a mix of people, Um and maybe have some people appointed by all the parties as well so that would cancel it out and make sure you know, have this nonpartisan group on this commission. And they would come up with the short list for candidates for the courts, for all the watchdogs that watch over the government, like the lobbying commissioner and the ethics commissioner, the information commissioner, and other cabinet appointments. And they would send a short list then to cabinet, and cabinet would have to choose from the short list. Unfortunately, that promise was broken. And the Conservatives went on to make many... Uh, very partisan appointments, including it was documented in terms of judges. Uh, and we don't know again how it worked on the inside exactly um, and how political the process was, but we know the results were quite political. And uh, there is a way to do this better. Um, as I mentioned, Ontario, the UK, Quebec, Manitoba, BC, they all have better systems than the feds and they're much more independent committees and then they send a short list and constrain, the uh, the political choice that the cabinet can make. So uh, you can't take politicians out of this entirely. The Constitution says that the, politi- the cabinet recommends to the governor general who to appoint to these positions. But you can take a lot of the politics out of it with a good process. And that's what we need to do. It's long overdue. And the pressure is uh, very much on the liberals because, thankfully, this whistleblower... Uh, disclose these documents uh, internally showing just how political the process is, which, which has raised the concern of lots of people.
0: Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch, love having you on. Thanks for taking some time to explain this today.
2: My pleasure, and I'll keep you updated as the uh, case winds its way through the courts and also the House Committee uh, comes up with its recommendations for how to improve things.
0: Please do, and if I understand correctly, we got to go. But I believe it's a Hamilton lawyer, Wade Pauziemko, that's uh, that's leading this. Am I correct?
2: That's right, from Ross McBride yep. LLP, and he's he helping so, us out on a pro bono basis, very generously.
0: We will uh, we'll be keeping our nose on this one very closely. Thanks very much for doing this. Appreciate it. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900CHML. Let me bring in Don Robertson, owner operator of the Dundas Real McCoys, Dundas Citizen of the Year. Some years ago, he, he he has not lived up to that billing since and was not able to repeat, but um, never conceded. So maybe he still owns the title. I'm not sure. Who who followed you? As, who, who succeeded you as Citizen of the Year? Do you know? No. I wouldn't remember either. I'd be so sour. I've, I've always thought, for example, like, you know, not that I'm a big follower of People magazine's Sexiest Man Alive or Sexiest Woman Alive, but how come there's never a repeat. Like, do you wear out your sexiness that fast that you could never be the sexiest two years in a row? Just wondering.
3: Well, it's never, never been a problem of mine. Perhaps it has been of yours, but
0: I. No, but citizen of the year, there was a, you know, you, you, you've continued to do good things in the community and to help out. Surely there was a possibility that you could have repeated, but I'm betting that if it's based on all the other citizen of the year things, they go, oh, he won it, forget it, he's done.
3: Well, I just, you know, it's, it's probably as good a time as any to mention this, but I'm um, I'm protesting. Everybody since me, and we're having <laughs> our lawyers go in and take a look at this thing because I think we've been duped. There's no reason there won't, won't be a five-year run on this stuff, and I think there may have been some irregularities. I'm going to have Rudy look at it for me.
0: I, I would, I would, because, you know, you will sell many more homes if you can say that I'm a five consecutive year winner of Dundas's <laughs> citizen of the year. That will, that will move a lot of properties, unless the people yeah. that you're trying to sell homes to are the people that were in the running and then they'll just never want to do business with you for, for that. But, you know, I, I think your chances are pretty good.
3: That's a pretty small group. So I'll take the
0: masses. That's right. Take the masses, take the glory, and uh, take your chances. Uh, Don Robertson, as I say, joins us every Monday at this time. Don, we got a lot of stuff I want to get to. um, But number one on the list, and I did not know this, uh, I saw a clip today of Dana White, who is the guy who runs the UFC, the Ultimate Fighting Championship. And what I'm going to talk about has nothing to do with the Ultimate Fighting Championship. But he was asked a question on the weekend, and his response was hilarious because Apparently, you know that Mike Tyson is fighting again this weekend. He's fighting against Roy Jones. That's coming up this weekend. And Dana White was asked about the rules of this fight, which he didn't know. And I didn't know, but there are a bunch of rules to this fight. So I thought Mike Tyson was going to come back and it was going to be a fight fight. Well, the rounds are two minutes, not three Um, the gloves are going to be larger than usual. They're going up to 12 ounces. So they're almost like pillows on their hands. There will be no official judges announced. So there's not really going to be a decision. Uh, any cut will immediately stop the fight and fighters will not be allowed to go for a knockout which I have no idea how you possibly enforce that, especially when it's Mike Tyson who is back fighting and that's all Mike Tyson does is go for the knockout. And I thought, okay, I, I don't understand it either, but they are charging forty nine ninety nine to watch this. And at this point, I'm thinking that you and I with pillows on our hands might be more violent than what we're going to see if we watch it.
3: Well, I... To watch Mike Tyson not go in there and swing for the fences, I don't know if that's entertainment. I mean, it's not like you've got Muhammad Ali that can go in there and put on a dance show and, you know, fly like a butterfly and sting like a bee. Tyson was a brawler. And you take the brawler out of Tyson, I don't know what you've got left. As you say, you got. You got gloves on them big enough that they're not likely going to knock anybody out anyway, but I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't put a past Tyson. He might just go, oops, sorry. Didn't think I hit him that hard. I'm right in, right in the button though. Right. So <laughs> well, two minutes, how many, how many uh, rounds are they going to have?
0: Eight. Eight. A- a- and so they're calling it heavy 16 sparring.
3: Rolls. 16 minutes of uh, solid, uh, pillow fighting for $49. Yeah, I-
0: but i don't think don i don't think that most of the people who already have put down their money for this and i don't know how many people buy these things ahead of time or how many wait till the last minute and go oh yeah i want to do it but if you've put your money down ahead of time do you, did i don't think most people knew what this was as you say why do i want to watch mike tyson not knock somebody out that's that was mike tyson's thing i want to see if he can still if he can still hit and and you know like i'm not going to be paying 49.99 I'll wait till it comes out or they show it on TV in a replay in a month or whatever they do anymore. But, but even then it with the referee. So Mike Tyson now, and maybe he won't win. I don't know. Roy Jones was a pretty great fighter, although he slowed down, but Tyson connects, let's say, and Jones is wobbly. Do you immediately stop the fight then because you can't then go in for the finish or is Tyson going to say, oh, I'm a nice guy now. I'm nice. Mike Tyson. I'm, uh, you know, the, the, uh, Mike Tyson from the movies and I'll just back off and I'll let him off the hook.
3: I don't think I'd get in a ring with Tyson without a referee. that to gnaw your ear off.
0: I don't think he's doing that. It- I, I mean, I, I, I don't, I, this has been always to me, the question about this fight in, in, at all is that Mike Tyson seems to be a different guy than he was back in the day. And uh, from a human being standing, that's a good thing. That's a very good thing that Mike Tyson is a much more cuddly, friendly, mature, nicer person.
3: But do I want to see Mike Tyson? It it wasn't too hard to climb above the bar except for himself.
0: No, it wasn't. for him, but. (laughs) No. But do I want to see that Mike Tyson in a boxing ring? The Mike Tyson I want to see, I mean, part of the reason why Mike Tyson was so great as a fighter and uh, it's unfortunate that, that it has to work like this, but the reason Mike Tyson was so great as a fighter is because he was a rage guy. He would go into the K, into the ring, and he would just want to knock your head off. I don't know if a nice Mike Tyson can possibly be a fighter. And if and if you revert, if he gets the gloves on and gets into the ring, gets hit in the head, and he reverts to old Mike Tyson, is he going to be able to say, oh, I wobbled him pull my punches, or is he going to see it and just go, oh, time to knock his head right off?
3: I don't know. Yeah, uh, it, it will be interesting to see if the animal instinct comes back. Uh, if he has, in fact, rebuilt his image uh, and worked at it, as you suggest, uh, it could all end Saturday night, because you're right, if he staggers him and then just grills someone when you're not supposed to, he'll be the Mike Tyson of old.
0: Although, do, is that not, do you think, am, am I the the exception here? I, I think if you're paying your money, that's exactly what you want to see. You don't want to see Mike Tyson hit Roy Jones if this happens, because again, Jones could win, but you don't want to see Mike Tyson hit him and then go, oh, I'm not going to follow it up and hit him again. I'm too nice now. I'm just going to hug him. You want If you're a person who's put down your 50 bucks, you want to see Tyson the way he used to be, swinging wildly and swinging for the fences.
3: Oh, of course you do. I mean, that, that's, I mean, I, if you're not buying that, I don't know what you're buying. I mean, they must be getting paid by virtue of this uh, fun fight, I guess it is. I mean, it sounds like high school wrestling a little bit. You know, you can't hurt anybody because everybody's supposed to be nice to everybody, but that, that's a tough sell on Mike Tyson. I mean, they might pull this off once, but $49 for 16 minutes of non boxing is, probably and you know one of the things I'm just thinking which is rare um, one of the attractions might be is that there is just so little um, of sports that that's uh, what we would call normal anymore and everybody's cooped up I mean it might do well I mean there might be a lot of people say well look we got nothing else to spend our money on and I'm pretty bored and Mike Tyson used to be pretty good have there been any I haven't been online, to look at that stuff. Is there any pictures of him? I mean, does he, oh, yeah. does he oh, look like Mike mean Tyson or does he look like me?
0: No. Oh no, no. I mean, he looks, he looks unbelievable, Don. He, I, and I'm being not facetious at all. This guy looks so good. Like you can't believe what his body looks like as a 54 year old. The shape that he's got himself in is incredible. It's incredible. And I, the other part about this that I started thinking about when I heard these rules, it's like, all right, if you're Mike Tyson, is it a good, if it, and you get the opportunity and you go in there and if you can find some speed and if you can box a little bit like you used to, is it worth it to you to break the rules if that sells future fights with real active fighters? right? Because I don't know how oh, yeah. much he's being paid for this, but if all of a sudden you just happen to catch Roy Jones and happen to knock him out cold with an old, old school Mike Tyson uppercut or hook, and that leads some promoter to go, look, that guy's actually, he's still a pretty good fighter. We'll give him a chance against a middling heavyweight who's active and 25 years old now, and it'll earn Mike Tyson $20 million. I, 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 I don't know if you, I don't, I've never boxed. I don't know if you have enough time in the ring to think through stuff as fists are flying, but I'm thinking maybe even beforehand that thought crosses his mind. He goes, oopsie. I'll, I'll, I'll just pretend that I forgot if I have to.
3: That's what I mean. He'll apologize later and help him up and everything else. And then say, who's next? Yeah, you're right. If he can make $20 million, boy. And you know, he'll sell too. Like people would watch oh, that even yeah. if it's partially a freak show. Oh yeah. Number one. I mean heavyweight boxing needs a Mike Tyson again and or and or a Mike Tyson because it's gone. I mean, why have the Don King? Did his hair fall down? I haven't seen or is he is he passed on now?
0: No, he's still around, but he's quite aged now and is, I, I saw him on TV a little while ago and he's, I mean, he's not the, the same bellicose, you know, guy that we remember as Don King, but uh, you know, I, I, Don, I, I can tell you when I was coaching kids hockey, um, the age that, um, I can't remember if it was the year that I could, that one of the years I coached or the year after, but my son's age group they had introduced body checking at Adam age. So that would have been uh, 10 and then they were the age group where they took it out the next year because they said, we're moving it up a level. But our kids had spent a year body checking and there was a kid on the team and one of the kids on the other team. Now the, the next year when there's no body checking anymore, one of the kids on the other team comes crossing the middle and the kid was a defenseman on our team. And he lined this kid up and just blew him up. It was a yard sale, stick and gloves and everything in every direction. (laughs) And the second he made contact, and it was a perfectly clean hit. Like it wasn't a dirty hit, except it was illegal now. But the second he made contact, the kid on our team who delivered the hit immediately put his hands up to his head like, oh, oops. And I I really do believe that he forgot. But in the moment, and I always remember that because in the moment, it's like you don't have time necessarily to think about You just, you do what you're trained to do. You do what you've practiced doing and what you're used to doing. And I just, I I just think that if Tyson gets a chance, I find it so hard to believe that he will be able to keep his powder dry and not fire that one more punch to try and put him out. And that means it's going to be all on the ref. And you know what I could see happening? We've seen it before. That ref is going to jump in to try and protect somebody right as the other guy is winding up to deliver the KO blow, and the ref is going to take it right in the mush.
3: Oh, yeah. no, he, uh, You're on to something. If, if he thinks he can get a a big payday out of this, even if it's not for the belt, it would be hard to give a 50. Well, how old was George Foreman when he was... Uh,
0: 46, 47. I mean, Tyson is older than that, but, but Foreman was getting up there.
3: I was going to say, Foreman was almost almost 50. So, and he wasn't exactly in tip top shape.
0: Like, no, he just know, hit I, like a, he just hit so hard. Like he was a mule every time. I mean, he, he could always punch, but you're right. He was out of shape, but Michael Moore, who was winning that fight and then decided that he wanted to trade with George Foreman, which may have been the stoop. I mean, I know boxers take punches to the head, but he must've taken a lot of punches to the head even before then, because you're winning a fight handily and you decide, you know what I think would be great? I'm going to stand in the middle of the ring and trade punches with maybe the hardest puncher in history. That's a good idea.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's great. How'd that go?
0: Not, not, not all that well, but that's, you know, no. but again, it goes to, I think, um, it goes to your box. It goes to what you've been trained to do. I don't think that Michael Moore in that fight went through the thought process that I just did and said, let's do something really dumb. I think he is a boxer who was trained that you go for the knockout. You move in and you try to do what you've always done. In that case, it put him into harm's way and it cost him that fight with Foreman. But I think Tyson, more than Roy Jones, Roy Jones is a guy who can dance, at least he could in his day, and he could win on points. He knocked guys out, but he could win on points. Tyson was a guy that knocked you out. And I just, I have to believe that even with this rule that I don't even understand how they're going to enforce, if Tyson gets a shot, I find, it ve- I find it very hard to believe that he won't take it. And I would think that would be the most unsatisfying things for the fans have paid their money. If you've got a chance and Tyson has a chance to be Tyson and he doesn't do it Uh, because that would be the end. Who's ever going to pay another pay-per-view if Tyson has a chance to be Mike Tyson and doesn't take it.
3: Oh, that, no, that's, it's a, it's a, it's a payday for him. He's got to look at, he fights to win. I mean, he was a bully when he comes storming into the ring with no, um, you know, he didn't have a towel over his shoulder. He didn't wear a robe. He just walked in and like he was going to beat everybody in the stadium up. And he was a bully. And like most bullies, once he got beat up, once he was a different man. But now he has an opportunity to go out there, and, and we'll see what happens. I mean, it may just be. I mean, he might make ten million doing this, or five million. And if he does, he says, you know, I can put on. I'll do two more of these. I'll make another. Yeah, do 10 the old timer circuit.
0: Yeah, what George Chavalo up to these days?
3: If they're worth watching, Chavalo's never been knocked off his feet. But anyway, it, I mean, it would be interesting to see what what comes of it. But he, if he thinks, you know, I can just flutter around in here and wobble around, I'll fight another old guy. Maybe George Foreman will fight me. You know, if they can make five million bucks a weekend or a pop, that's not bad, that dope. But nope, I don't know. You're right. It's just like. The kid that dropped the guy coming through the middle when you're not supposed to hit anymore. Once that's in you, and you, he sees that opening and he drills him. Boy, I don't imagine he's been training to not hit.
0: Yeah, how do you train to not hit? It's <laughs> a great question. How do you, how do you, work out to miss? That's. Um... That's a weird one. Anyway, the four, if you're into it, if you want to see Mike Tyson not knock somebody out on purpose, uh, allegedly, although I'm not sure, uh, $49.99. You can watch him this Saturday or just wait till you see it streaming somewhere or highlights or whatever else. But um, we'll, we'll see how this one goes because... I I, I do think that if he breaks the rule and just ignores it and knocks him senseless, I think there's some big paydays still for Mike Tyson down the road, especially with the shape that he has gotten himself in. You should take a look at the pictures. It's pretty amazing. Lots of moves in NBA free agency these days, and I don't want to dive into who's going where and all the rest, except for one thing. Once again, it appears that the NBA, in my mind, has a problem, which is... You've got all these guys who all want to play on two or three teams. They want, guys want to play on these super teams. And it doesn't look like guys want to be on teams that are rebuilding. It doesn't look like guys want to be, no matter how much money you're going to pay them, want to be on teams that aren't going to contend. Everybody wants to go and play with their buddies and be on these super teams. And honestly, I know the Raptors won, which makes this era a good one for basketball fans around here, but I can't think of anything less interesting to me and more boring than just a bunch of super teams artificially built. I don't mind a super team that's been built through the draft and good trades, but just a bunch of free agents that are flocking to go hang out with their buddies to me is the most uninteresting thing in sports.
3: Well, I don't think first of all, that those, that system builds winners. I'm not sure it does. I think, uh, Teams that have good quality guys that have a vested interest in it, like Lowry and Van Fleet, um, who grew up through the Raptors system, uh, versus guys that just jump ship. Like LeBron is just a great basketball player. I mean, Kawhi Leonard is a great basketball player. But you know, just to have the good players go there to play in LA, and LA is uh, presumably part part of what you're talking about because yeah. Uh, Chewbacca went to the Lakers and, um, no. Uh,
0: Who Casall went to the went Lakers?
3: Lakers. Well, Casal, didn't he? Mark Casal. Oh, I
0: thought you said Chewbacca. Uh,
3: Sir, no, Serge... Uh, Ibaka. Oh, Ibaka.
0: <laughs> I thought you said Chewbacca. Oh, yeah. and it's like, well, I think we're mixing our stories here. Yes, Imb- Serge Ibaka. Okay, there you go. That well, makes more sense. That's a way to say his name. Anyways, yeah. <laughs> so they
3: both... both yeah. Should have got that. out. I don't think I could. If you wrote it on a frame, I'd get it any better. Anyways, like I know what you're talking about, but you're right. That that is almost the NBA is almost becoming like European soccer, where you have the Premier Division and then a lower division. Like there are there are teams in the NBA. The Dumbass Real McCoy's got a better ch- chance of winning an NBA championship than some of the teams in that league. I mean, they just won't be able to compete. They they're not going to win. And I don't know how you run a league when there's so many teams in it that really have no chance to win. The NHL done a good job of doing that. I mean, everybody's got a bit of a crack at it. But the NBA is not like that at all.
0: Well, because so, the know, NBA, I mean, unlike the NHL, uh, unlike the NHL where you have a 21, 23-man roster and you really need to have how many good players? I mean, you need to have 10 really good players on your team not necessarily super super superstars but 10 really good players and then decent guys around them you can win in the nba with two or three superstars and two or three really good players there's a lot less a lot fewer people you need which makes it a lot harder to do a super team in the nhl
3: yes i agree and and uh, what the real good teams are are they they need some pleasant surprises guys that come along and Eat up some minutes so your superstars can rest and everything else. But um, I mean, your point of there being teams that now it generally always still gets down to money. Yes. Right. Serge had a one year offer from the Raptors and a two year from somebody else. And I love Toronto. I love Toronto. I love Toronto. And I, as I always say, watch where the money is because that's where they go. And it's a real bonus. If you got a chance to win but if somebody offered him a three-year contract worth or a four-year contract worth $125 million on a team that was in last place last year, he could probably spin a story that he thought they could build around him and he's got enough in him to get him the championship if the money's right.
0: Oh, look, I, I when I said that guys don't want to play, I'm talking about the superstars. So if you are a guy who's got the leverage, you want to go where you want to go and play with your buddies. If you're a Serge Ibaka, who's a good player but not not a guy that anyone's buying tickets to go watch, but a really good player, and they want to pay you a stupid sum of money to go and be part of a team, oh yeah, I mean I'll, I'll go and play wherever. I'll go and play for you know the team they're going to set up in Baghdad if you want, if they're going to pay me enough. Yeah, uh, it, it's the superstars that are now deciding. Oh, we all got to we all got to join together. It all it started with that Miami thing with. LeBron and Bosch and, um, and what's his face, uh, Dwayne Wade. And, you know, it's become the thing now. And once again, I go back, I have no issue with the super teams that were built legitimately. And when I say that, like the Lakers, when they, when they had Shaq and they traded for Kobe Bryant, um, uh, or traded for Shaq or whatever it was. I even I, I even think did Shaq come as a free agent to LA? I can't even remember how he got there, but it yeah. wasn't like but it wasn't like there were not, it wasn't like he was going there to be part of nine other guys that were all buddies. He went he went to a team. There was one other player there. Um, you know back in the day when it was the Lakers and the and the Celtics who were in the finals every year, those were super teams, but they were all built through the draft and through trades. I don't think was there anybody on those teams that showed up really significant as a free agent? Bird was drafted by the Celtics. Magic was drafted by the Lakers. They built around those guys. But that's
3: how that's how it used to be, right? I think, and, and I think, if, and if you look at the his, history of it, some of the things that when the um, the that the players got by virtue of a salary cap, of, I mean, you can pay penalties. You know, the the, the NHL has a hard cap. You can you can kind of get around the salary cap. In the NBA a little bit. And I think by virtue of the owners getting more cost certainty, they gave the players more free agency. And I think that's the fundamental difference between the bird and the magic era versus now today. Because Van Fleet could have left. He's like 26 years old. He could have left. Yeah, yeah, I but mean, he got money. You don't control players very long now, but that's part, partially what the players got, right? For the, for the league to have some cost certainty and, and, and they don't have great great cost certainty anyway, but I think that's you'll see that's how that evolved and it was going that way in the NHL and they stopped it. And they've created more balance. I mean, uh, whether you like balance or not, I mean, you're not going to see anybody in, in the NHL, the way it's structured, win four out of five Stanley Cups anymore because you have to build through the draft like you said, like the Celtics did and the Lakers did and they were true champions because, and then they would go to go out and they would add parts, maybe a veteran guy, right? You bring a guy in that can kind of help you. He's maybe 34 years old, but his experience and everything else will help. Now they just go out and buy a team.
0: lot of um, concern right now about the NHL season. They've got to figure something out with the players pretty quickly because if they want to start on January 1st or thereabouts, you got to get training camp and you've got to have things sorted out for a schedule and you've got to have guys in town and quarantine and all the rest. That means we're talking a week or two to find this out. And it sounds like there is nowhere close to agreement because the player, the owners want the players to take less of a slice of the money because there's no crowds, there's no fans. Are we walking down a path towards yet another lockout under Gary Bettman?
3: I don't, uh, uh, I, I, I couldn't picture a lockout over this, um, mostly because the NHL had some other options to save face, and that is that it's just not safe to do this. You know what I mean? There, there There's a whole bunch of escape hatches here. Now, uh, and I haven't read anything recently, but, you know, the, the players get a percentage of income. So I don't know how that can't be directly reflected in the fact that there's nobody buying tickets. So everybody's going to have to play for whatever the TV revenue is really. And, and whatever the uh, merchandise sales are. Now merchandise sales, will they soar because people are doing online shopping? I doubt it, but so I think by the sounds of it, that the players want the owners to, top up the TV money and give them almost all the revenue, which really kind of hampers the rest of the operation. The scouts got to get paid. Tampa, I think it was Tampa Bay the other day just laid off a bunch of people or the Florida Panthers because there's no money, right? They didn't make any playoff revenue. So I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think they'll lock them out. I think that they can, they'll call a COVID timeout before they'll do that. Because they've got a pretty good relationship. they just got to sort it out, and it's not going to be easy.
0: Well, no, because they just had negotiated and sorted things out, and then all of a sudden the players come – or the owners come back, and they say, um, you know what, we need more money from you. And and while, while I do understand what the owner's position is in this, and I'm generally sympathetic towards the owners in certain circumstances, I also in this one can see the players going, well, you just – sorted this out with us we just went through this process and you knew some stuff was happening and now you want more and and I I just I don't I just don't see the players many of them saying that it's worth it for now worth it I mean it's all relative right for you and for me well maybe not for you but for me you know playing for three or four or five million dollars a year is more than worth it but for some of these players if this contract says they're supposed to be getting 10 maybe that's not worth it
3: well, yeah. Well, here's what I guess you have to look at too, and you always look at this during the lockouts and everything else, like the year of the lockout. How many guys are going to lose a full year? So, somebody that's going to make a million eight. I mean, do you want to hold your breath and not make seven hundred thousand? Because guess what? Your first year under the NHL, I'm betting you're not making seven hundred thousand dollars doing anything. So to lose an entire year. You can ask the guys that retired out of the lockout season and the strike season. There, there's no real big winners in that thing, especially the players that lose a year of uh, year of salary. I mean, I don't know who's right on this one, Scott. I don't I mean, the players, you would think would be somewhat sympathetic, but maybe they, they think the owners are trying to say, you know what? nobody can make any money on this year. Give us what you can. Like, I don't think there can be any profit in the NHL this year. It's just a matter of who's going to get skinned for the most.
0: Yeah, I I, I, I agree with you, but when have we seen players and owners say there's no profit and therefore we're going to agree on this? There always is the belief that there is profit and the belief always is that I should get more of it than that guy. And so as long as the two sides believe there is money to be made, even if it's not the same amount of money, they don't want to take less because they just assume, and they, I think, fully believe that if they back off, they're just giving more money. They're not really losing money. They're just giving more money to the other side, and and they don't want to do that.
3: Yeah, I think under these circumstances, so you know what? I mean, it's a matter of um, um, who's going to lose the least. I You know, you always question the the owners and I think some of the players are still a little skeptical if all the cards are on the table on hockey generated revenue and the definition of that. But I think they've nailed it down pretty good, but I just don't see where the owners are going to get any revenue. I mean, you still got to fly these guys around. You still got to pay them a lot of money to eat every day. I mean, it's, it's absurd that the, that you give a guy that's making a few million dollars a year. $200 so we can eat the days on the road, right? So all those expenses aren't going to get any cheaper. I, you know, I don't know whether expenses go down and boy, their income has no shot, at least in Canada. I can't, if they do an all Canadian division, which appears to be the only logical way to look at it, I don't see anybody being able to put people in their building maybe all year.
0: Wouldn't that be the irony? The Florida Panthers have to help pay the bills of the Toronto Maple Leafs.
3: That would be a, uh, that would be a, a little bit different than normal. Yes. Yes. That would be <laughs> yeah. uh, but then, you know, 20,000 people at eight bucks a head doesn't pay a lot of bills. You no. cost more to buy a beer, beer at the Storcher Bank Center that does get into the game in Florida, I think.
0: I, I, I mean, I don't know how you, I think you may be onto something cause I hadn't thought of it where the owners just say, oh, you know what? It's become too difficult and too scary. And we can't really do this as the out as opposed to a lockout. Cause I just, uh, I don't see the players relenting on this one and I don't see the owners and you know, the Leafs, the Canadians, the Rangers, the Flyers, the Red Wings, they can survive. They'll, they'll get by with fewer revenues cause they still have so much other peripheral stuff, but if you are those smaller markets and you can't put anybody oh, yeah. in the stands, how in the world can you possibly expect the owner to even remotely break even?
3: Well, I, I'm i not feeling bad for MLSE on any given day. No. Nope. But in, in their defense, you're right. They have other methods of making money. That building, I mean, it makes the Carlton cash box look like a piggy bank. I mean, that building in Toronto would, would generate millions of dollars a year, and the only thing they're doing is cleaning it. You know what I mean? They don't have anything in their back pocket that's making them any money. It, it won't be cheap to have the Raptors play out of, out, out of uh, Tampa Bay this year with no revenue, right? So they're going to have to put them all up. So I, I just – I don't think some of these teams – I mean, MLSE will be fine, but there's going to be casualties in the front office and, and so on. Like there has been cutbacks in everybody's business, but, uh, boy, those like, do you think of the staple center? I mean, there's two NBA teams and an NHL team playing out of there. I mean, they'll have an NHL game in the afternoon and an NBA game at night. That building's I'm sure pretty dark. So they don't have, my point is I don't think the players have the argument, but look at where you're making money over here. And they're going where, like keep looking under the, you know, the little cones on a the table, there's nothing under there, there's
0: no pot yeah. of
3: gold.
0: The, the, the Leafs and the Canadians with their local TV deals, I'm sure are making good money because they, you know, those are the, the two that, but, but what about Ottawa? I mean, what about t- Winnipeg? You know, they, they have a market, but how, I'm sure they you know even have a market where they can break even but I don't think they're making the money that they expect. And then all of a sudden you've got some big contracts and stuff. It's um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm not entirely sure that I'm expecting to see hockey right off the bat this year. I'm, we're going to see, we will see.
3: They got some trap doors and they may, they may have to use them. The Scott Radley show weekday evenings from six to eight on 900
0: CHML.